Hi, I'm Frank Butler. A few months ago, I gave a four-lecture introduction to apologetics at a local church's leadership group. I have taken the four lectures and broken them up into approximately 20-minute segments to make the material more accessible. What you are listening to today is part one of lecture one from that series. I pray that this material serves to advance the kingdom of our Lord by teaching the people of His church. Thank you for listening. Well, we'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. We'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. We'll be all right if the Lord be on our side. And the Lord is on our side. You should have prayed for the weather also. This is... This is the weather that Floridians die in. <laughs> We're, we are not made for this. I mean, in this room alone, like, it's cold enough, so. How are you guys doing tonight? Y'all are a lively bunch. I like that, because last year I showed up in the class that we had. Uh, when I first walked in the room, they were just kind of quiet, whispering to each other a little bit. So, this group is not that way, so, all right. All right, well, my name is Frank Butler. As Brad mentioned a second ago, I am an elder at Klondike Baptist, which is a stone's throw away down the street here. So how many of you here, real quick, are familiar with Harry Potter? Read the books, watched the movies. The books are way better. I watched the movies years ago, and they were pretty good. And then I've been, I've been audiobooking uh, through the books for the past two weeks. I'm on book four now. Uh, the books are way better. Anyway, my point being, though, in Harry Potter, you have, or one of the classes Harry and his friends are required to take is uh, defense against the dark arts, okay? That is essentially what apologetics is. How many of you are familiar with apologetics at all? A little bit? Yeah, so that's essentially what apologetics is. It's defense against other worldviews, other beliefs, and things like that. And we're going to actually go into detail about what apologetics is as a definition here in a few minutes. But in the meantime, I've never used a slide before, so if this looks awkward to you, believe me, I feel awkward with it. <laughs> um, this is how we're going to do this. Tonight, we're going to talk about what is apologetics. We're going to talk about the myth of neutrality. I'll explain what that is when we get to it. Don't be worried about it. Next week, on Monday night, we'll pick up with practical apologetics, which basically means all of this is impractical apologetics. And then, um, that was a joke. <laughs> Come on, per, at least try to laugh at my jokes. Le and then we will end next week with playing a game of tag, as you can see right here, and closing questions. I'm kidding. TAG is an acronym for the Transcendental Argument for God. But that's generally what we're going to be doing for the next two nights. Wait, i got to click over here, not over here. So tonight, what is apologetics? What is apologetics? So one person so far said they have any familiarity with apologetics. Has anyone had any study in philosophy? Maybe taken a class in college at some point? Uh, glanced at a book in Barnes & Noble? Anything? No, that's good. That's good. So apologetics, what is apologetics? Apologetics means, literally, to give a word back, to respond in defense, speech in defense. You have your outlines in front of you. Just about everything that I have on the slideshow tonight will be on your outlines for you to follow along. It is two Greek words, apo, meaning back from, and logos, meaning word. It transliterates a word back from. Like I said, to give a word back, to respond in defense, speech in defense. It's often translated, which tells us a lot about what a word could mean. It's often translated as defense. No kidding, we just mentioned that one. Vindication, or my personal favorite, answer. It's an answer. It's a definitive answer. Let me ask a quick question, just a survey. How many of you believe 
that Christianity, what you believe about God, what you believe about creation, what you believe from this Bible, the Christian faith, how many of you believe that it is objectively, unquestionably true? How many of you believe that it can be proven to be true without a doubt? Hey, I'm, I'm, you're not sure. Uh, <laughs> you got your hands up. I'm glad to hear that. Most Christians don't believe it can be. Most Christians do not believe that they can objectively, without question, provide an answer to the unbelieving worldviews. Just, I think, I just was wondering, like, faith comes in there. Some, I mean, I don't know, maybe not. Just, just brace for impact. Terry, if you have a Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We're going to be flipping through a lot of scriptures tonight. Acts chapter 21. <laughs> if you go to 22, you've gone too far. What? My Bible doesn't have first or second kings. It's a misprint. You just found that out. So he's a liberal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole thing yet, but and when you get to verse 26, you have Paul preaching. Um, he's doing what all of us Christians should be doing. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's sharing the good news of Jesus. And of course, as usually happens with Paul, a riot starts. People get angry. People show up to disagree with Paul. They don't like what he's saying. It's a problem what he's saying. So they have him arrested. And in verse 30, you start off, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So they don't like what he's saying so much that they arrest him. They drag him into the temple. So when he had given Paul permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Hear my defense before you now. The first point in your outline on letter I right there, is to hear my defense. Apologetics requires the use of words. Hear my defense. The word actually used in the Greek here for defense is apologia. It's the word we just talked about. Hear my defense. It requires the use of words, which means you have to do what, quite frankly, a number of Christians are very uncomfortable doing. You have to open your mouth. You have to say things that people are going to disagree with. You have to challenge what they believe. And we're going to talk more about that, actually, in the next few minutes. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. What do we learn from this text? What's Peter telling us in this text? Peter is telling us that all Christians are called to give an answer. All Christians are called to give an answer, an apologetic. That word answer is, again, the Greek word, apologia. All Christians are called to give an answer. Okay, It's not just the duty of the pastor. It's not just the duty of your Sunday school teacher. It's not just the duty... I don't know if y'all do Sunday school here or not. It's not just the duty of your community group leader, small group leader, whatever the title we have here is. It's not just the duty of your leader. All Christians are called to do apologetics. And I want to make a distinction real quick. That doesn't mean that every single Christian is called to stand before a class and teach how to do apologetics. 
to host a debate where you're debating an unbeliever in front of a crowd of people on the Christian faith. It doesn't mean you're called. It doesn't mean you're called to write a book on how to do apologetics. All this means is that every Christian is called to give an answer for the hope that is in them, for the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. What we see in 1 Peter is that the lordship of Jesus Christ is the starting point. It is the starting point. That's a big deal. We're going to spend this whole class, really, for the next tonight and next week talking about what this means. But most Christians in apologetics actually do not begin with Jesus or the Scriptures as the starting point. Okay? They don't start with Jesus. They assume because the unbeliever doesn't believe in this that we don't start here. We find a way to reach them some other way. No, we start with Christ. The Lordship of Christ is the starting point. Colossians 2, 18... Went too fast. Colossians 2, 8 through 12 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head and rule over all authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body by the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice in that text, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, but rather than according to Christ. Christ is the starting point, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells. It's not in the philosophy of the world. It's not in the philosophy of men. It's not in the beliefs of other people. It is in Christ that it starts. It is in Christ that you must begin as a Christian. Looking back at 1 Peter chapter 3, where we were just at, you have the word sanctify Christ. Uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What is meant by this word, Lord in your hearts, this phrase, Lord in your hearts? The word heart does not refer to the center of our emotions and our feelings. That's usually what we see it as, okay, as Christians. When we hear heart, we think about what we feel, um, the emotions that are coming from our hearts, the way we uh, interpret things around us and we respond emotionally to them. That's not what the scriptures mean by heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. You don't have to turn to these, but just hear me out. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 talks about heart, and it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, and their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. Heart refers, uh, like letter I, to the location of our reasoning. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14 let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word heart here is referring to our meditation, the deep thoughts that are in our mind. Proverbs 8, 5, O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Wisdom is an implication of the heart. Wisdom comes from the heart. Knowing how to discern right and wrong comes from the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, If you shall say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispose, dispossess them? Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. The idea in this text is they think that the nations are too big for them to conquer. And God says, you are thinking this in your heart and you will be disciplined. 
heart here referring to our thinking, the way we think. Okay, it's not just how we feel. It's not just the emotions that are coming from within us. It is how we think. It's what's going on in our head as well. And finally, finally, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Heart also refers to our believing, to what we believe. You can see from looking at this list real quick, heart is not merely what we feel at all. In fact, the majority of references in Scripture refer to our heart as being involved with our thinking, what happens in our brains, what happens in our minds, what happens in our philosophy, what happens in the way we understand the world and interpret things, how we articulate what we believe, all of it starting in our heads, in our heads. It's about thinking. This text in 1 Peter tells us also that we must always be ready. We must always be ready. The text says specifically, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. There shouldn't be a time when you're caught off guard when someone asks you why you believe what you believe about Jesus Christ. There shouldn't be a time where you hear an unbeliever saying atrocious, godless things that we would disagree with as Christians, and you're left thinking, I have no idea what I believe about that or why. No, the text says we should always be ready. At every point, always ready. And then secondly, the text says, we see in this text, we are to offer a defense to everyone who asks. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. Everyone. Whether it's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your best friend, your co-worker, your teacher at school, your boss at work, it doesn't matter. Anyone Anyone who asks, anyone who inquires of your faith, anyone who challenges your faith, anyone who talks to you about faith at all, you are required as a Christian to give an answer. Not to say, I don't know. Not to say, have you Googled it? (laughs) Not to Google it for them. Not to find any way we can to avoid the conversation. No, you are required to give an answer to everyone. So let me ask you a question real quick. How many of you in this room have been sitting with some friends, maybe some family, or at work, listening to people talk about matters of faith or matters of belief, whether it be religious belief or political belief or whatever, and you're hearing this, and you know what they're saying is false, you know what they're saying isn't true, but you're not quite confident to engage with that. You're not quite confident in what you believe to be able to say, that's wrong. How many of you have experienced that before? How many of you have met someone or know somebody that is a very intelligent person? They have been to school, they've read all the books, they're gifted smart. And you really hope they never ask you about your faith because you have no idea what you're going to say. Everyone in this room just about shaking their head, yes, we've all met that person. But this text tells us that we're to have an answer even for that person. And the good news about apologetics is there is an answer. There is an answer to every objection under the sun. There is an an answer to every unbeliever who opens his mouth. And that's what we're going to look at today, or next week, or both. Cornelius Van Til, you're going to hear me reference this guy more times than you can count in this lecture, okay? One of the most brilliant men in Christian history. Dr. Van Til said, Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life, or a worldview, against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life or worldview. 
Again, apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. You can substitute philosophy of life for worldview. Every facet of Christian doctrine requires, we defend, a worldview. Every facet of Christian doctrine requires an apologetic because we defend a worldview. How many of you know what a worldview is? Raise your hand if you do. A worldview is how you interpret the world around you. It's how you view the world around you. Don't overthink it. (laughs) It's how you view the world around you. It's how you see things occurring in the world around you. It's how you understand things occurring in the world around you and how you interpret them as a Christian. It is your worldview. Now, as Christians, how should, what should be our standard for interpreting the world around us, for understanding reality? It should be the Scriptures. It should be the Bible, okay? That's the foundation of our worldview. What Van Til is getting at here is that apologetics is the defense of the Christian worldview against any other worldview, against all other worldviews. As point B in, in your outline, every facet of Christian doctrine requires an apologetic. We defend a worldview. Now, why am I emphasizing that worldview part for just a second? Because what's popular in Christian apologetics today and what's popular amongst Christians today is we only defend our faith when people tell us there's other ways to be saved. It doesn't really matter what they believe about economics. It doesn't really matter what they believe about the nature of man. It doesn't matter what they believe about ghosts or, or the other world or any of these things. The important thing is that we defend that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And that's not apologetics. You do defend that, absolutely. If you don't defend that, then you're losing the capital city. (laughs) But that is not all you defend, okay? If someone is going to come into your house and attack you and your family, you don't wait, and you know they're coming, you don't wait till they get through the threshold of your front door to finally respond to them. No, you're you're waiting in your front lawn. You're not going to get on my property at all. We're going to stop this before you ever get here. The Christian approach to apologetics defends every facet of the Christian worldview. What does Christianity believe about X, Y, or Z, and how do I defend it about X, Y, or Z? Point six in our outline is piecemeal or systematic. Piecemeal or systematic. Piecemeal meaning piece by piece by piece, individual disconnected joints or parts, and systematic being like an entire system that is built together, that is connected and touches every part. It's not enough to defend bits and pieces of Christian belief, such as the flood, resurrection, miracles, as if they're all disjointed. To forego one aspect is to forego the entire worldview. Now, how many of you have heard of the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Yeah, Ken Ham built this Ark that's a life-size Ark, like we read about in the Scriptures, for us to go and view. It's awesome. I haven't gotten to go yet, but it's awesome. (laughs) I fully intend to go. Nonetheless, um, what a lot of people have done is taken things like the ark, the flood as a whole, or the miracles of Christ, and this right here is the only thing that they're interested in defending. So, for example, someone will say, we have no record of the flood ever happening outside of the Bible. And their apologetic is to only talk about the flood. That's what we're defending is the flood. The majority of Christian apologetics over the past several decades has focused on only defending creation. How many of you realize that there is a massive war about whether or not the Bible, uh, whether or not the Bible is accurate in creation in six days or whether God created the world or not? You better be aware of that. I mean, it's everywhere. And the majority of apologetics has focused on those key issues, and those are necessary issues. But that's not all. 
That's not all. Piecemeal versus holistic. Point B. We defend a worldview at a foundational level. A foundational, presuppositional level. It's up here if you need to uh, know how to spell that. If I don't have a red squiggly line appearing, I don't know how to spell something. Foundational, presuppositional level. How many of you know what the word presuppositional means? Nobody? How many of you know what it means to presuppose something? Think about it real quick. If I tell you I suppose the weather outside is 75 degrees, that means what? I'm assuming. If I say I presuppose before I ever go outside that it's 75 degrees, what does that mean? I'm assuming before I actually investigate. I'm presupposing. It's a foundational assumption. It's what you think about or what you assume before you actually engage with the material. Now, the reality is everybody has presuppositions. Every single human being has presuppositions. You have presuppositions that you don't even realize exist. Okay? You assume things that you don't even realize exist. All right? For a Christian, there's some things you better assume. You better open this book to read it and assume that it's the Word of God. You're a Christian. That's what you're supposed to believe. If you don't believe that, well, we have to investigate your faith a little bit. <laughs> Everybody assumes a myriad of things. Okay? And here's an example of what I'm, what I'm getting at here. If I were to tell you that we have a man in a room across the hall here, and in that room he has a six-shot revolver, and we're going to put each one of you in that room with him, one on, one, each one by yourself, one-on-one -on -one in the room with him, and he's going to shoot you. What are you going to do? Are you going to sit here and think, okay, how do I dodge bullets? How do I practice dodging bullets? How do I practice dodging bullets? Or are you going to think, Okay, if I'm going to be locked in a room with a man with a gun that has intent to do me harm, how do I take the gun from him? How do I remove the gun from him? When we talk about presuppositional apologetics, that's what we're talking about. I'm not interested in standing here and giving you every single answer to every single individual objection that's ever came against the Christian worldview. We would be here for years. We would, and guess what? New objections will come forth, and we'll be here for more years. What I would rather do is teach you how to identify the person's presuppositions, what they're assuming when they argue against God. I would rather teach you how to identify those and blow them up. I'd rather teach you how to tear those things apart. I'd rather teach you how to take the gun out of their hands. And after a while of doing it, after you really understand how to do presuppositional apologetics, not only do you take the guns out of their hands, you take their own gun and you aim it back at them. You take their own gun and you aim it back at them. We're going to talk about that at the end of this lecture. Dr. Greg Bonson, another name you're going to hear from me quite often, said, when we do apologetics, we have to be able to take a method that will apply to anything that comes along because no one can build a house without foundations and we know how to destroy foundations. So I can sit here and tell you, when someone comes to you and says, there is absolutely no historical evidence for the flood outside of the Bible, I can sit here and take you to all the different ancient literatures that tell us that there was a flood of some sort. I can show you what the Bible says about the flood. And guess what? They're going to change their argument and they're going to say, well, there's no evidence of the resurrection. 
And then when you answer that, well, there's no evidence of X, Y, and they're going to keep going down the list. Because the problem isn't their argument. The problem is what they're assuming when they argue against the God of the universe. One, they're assuming they can do that. And we're going to talk about how to deal with that. Well, we'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's Oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's Oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old Donner's Oak. For the Lord, he's stronger far. And we all belong to Jerusalem above.